Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And, and this, this is Storymakers Show. And it has been a while. Uh, for good reason. For very good reason. So Angie's been uh, directing her film. We've completed production, yes. Completed production. And, um, and I then like dove into Sonoma County Writers Camp and finishing a draft of my novel. So um, that's a tiny summary, but why don't we go to what have you been working on in your own words? Uh, well, what I've been working on is trying to get my mind around the post-production process in a different way. We were lucky enough to have a huge number of volunteers. Unbelievable. Um, I'm really happy with what I've collected. There's still, you know, bits and pieces to get. Um, now, do you mean there are, there's footage to get? Yeah. There are inserts to get still. There are different pieces yeah. that we need to get. Um she says to her slightly alarmed producer. <laughs> uh, no, no. I mean, basically, I think once we sh- finish editing, we'll see much more where right. we need them. But I mean, there are inserts from the pictures of the oh, photos, that right, sort of stuff. Right, right, right. And my producer might remember that I, we did talk about that a yeah, while ago. Yes, I bet she will. Uh, yes. Time. Well, she's a very kind, generous <laughs> producer, so I think she'll be cool. Um, anyway, so wrapping my head around post-production, getting uh, kind of clear on what I need to do for wrapping up my master's program, but also starting to think about what's the next project. Mm. So. Yeah, well, that's kind of interesting because I'm in this very similar place. So uh, I knew I needed to do this next pass of my book. And actually, I mean... I, I feel like I've been working on this for like six months, right? So you and I kind of talked about the plot once I got notes from my agent, and I and I really struggled with how I was going to replot it um, because we would come up with solutions. I would I would sort of force you to even give me a, concrete ideas, right? Which is the kind of thing we we sort of wouldn't presume to do in our teaching or don't philosophically think is the right thing, but I would still, because, you know, I could sort of force you to give me specific ideas. But what I found that was interesting to me that aligns with the philosophy is that I couldn't, um, I couldn't go down a road, even if it looked solid and exciting plot wise, if it didn't feel authentic to what, to some inner thing. So that was interesting. (laughs) And, um, and then I made all these huge changes, and of course the changes begot beget more changes, and so the necessarily necessarily, and yet oh, it's so frustrating. It feels endless. And so finally, what I did was, um, I finally sent it to readers because I felt if I change the changes without getting any feedback, sort of this far in. I mean, I changed the change, right? But it's like at some point, I feel I have to know what are the key things. Because what? Because I have such, I have my fingers all over it. I see like an infinity of things that need to change. Mm-hmm. I need readers to tell me like it's these five that you really need to focus on, right? So anyway, so I've sent it off to readers, and I am also thinking like, in addition to how am I going to go back in, and what's what really matters here, what's next, and not only what's next, but how do I want to approach what what I do next time differently because of what I've learned from this time? Right. You know, I actually would argue, you know, Agile, you know, we've, we've, we've looked at different stuff about Agile development, and one of them is... And just say quickly what that is for anyone who it's a know. It's a method of developing um, software primarily, uh, and I think it's gone out from there, and it may have actually started 
back in Japanese manufacturing. There's a whole kind of history around it. But it's a system for... But the thing that we looked at and that we sort of took was um, the idea of the scrum process. And in that process, you set aside time not to figure out the 800 things that went wrong, but the, the two that you can look at for the next week. Right. So, so you set your goals, you go through this whole process, and then at the end of the short-term goal process, you look at, okay, what are two things I can focus on fixing going forward? Right. And then mm-hmm. you let the other ones go. Right. Because so, if there's still a problem, they'll show up again next week. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, and I think, and I, you know, I sort of, I, what I say as a teacher and as a mentor when I'm guiding other people is, the really the best thing you can do is make the mistakes that you make sooner and faster. Like, go towards your flaws and your failings and your flailings all full force because that's the only way to get more efficient with creativity. You can't really get more efficient by becoming a different person or doing it a completely different way than is your personality, right? You can only right. sort of lean into your personality. I've not read that book, but, right? I mean... Unfortunately, because I think it would be nicer to just be a different person. <laughs> it would be more fun sometimes. You look concerned. <laughs> well, at least you're not like, it would be more fun if the people around me were different people. Like, no, that's a better statement. I wouldn't want to change anybody else. How, how unenlightened that would be. <laughs> um, so one of the things we want to talk about today is is that beat between iterations, right? That So you're, you're done shooting, you're done with the latest edit, and how do you go into the next phase, and how do you shift gear and plan and prepare? And, and we're kind of in, the, in that dip, each of us, so, so we may, so we're kind of, we're not preaching to the converted, we're, exploring. we're, we're wondering. <laughs> and then the other thing I wanted to talk about is um, story problems. So that's part two of this episode. What What is a problem that, that kind of lends itself to to it creating a story? So um, any advice from the ditches about, or any thoughts, any per- perceptions, perspectives about this kind of moment where you're in between iterations? Um, you know, I think it's, it's di- slightly different than places that we are yeah. in the sense that, you know, you've done a ton of revision already. And really, when you think about film, the thing that I've done is sort of collect the materials, essentially, from which I'm going to create the film. It's so interesting, because you had a script, and you revised the script many times, and you did table reads. So you've done, you did that with the script, like, fully, right? Many, many iterations. Then you collect all this material, and it's almost like you have to go back to the, it's like Andy Lamott's sort of shitty first draft process, except you're not, because it's these great actors bringing themselves well, I mean, that's also to different, it. right? So you, as the screenwriter, have one idea, and then you, as the screenwriter, have one idea, and then your um, actors bring a wealth, uh, as I had hoped they would, you know, um, brought a wealth of insight and new ideas to the project. So, Which may be in the equivalent of, as your readers in a novel. <laughs> I mean, it is collaborative because the reader very, has to yeah. sort of embody it the way the actors do. Right. So, um, were there challenges to integrating those new ideas or to, I mean, to letting go of the single mindedness of your vision? 
I think there were times where I, you know, felt like, oh, maybe maybe you don't get what's happening in this scene, and mm-hmm. so you're making that choice. Mm-hmm. And that was definitely a challenge, is like, you know... And as a director... Are we all in the same place right. around what are the emotional beats of this scene, what's happening? Um, and so sometimes you could say, well, this is what I'm thinking, right? Because you're the director, too. Right. But you don't want to shut down people's ideas, and sometimes when people had ideas or questions, it wasn't like, oh, how could you think that? It was like, oh, that's an interesting read... And, you know, I want to make space to try that on. So hopefully I got a variety of reads. I got a variety of approaches. And, of course, as I sit down and I look through the footage with my editor, we'll be coming up with all of those pieces. And, and choosing which, yeah. which iteration you, you want. I mean, it, I was reading a, an old, an old not, not a most recent, but a profile of Jill Soloway, who does trans, direct Transparent, created it. And she... Uh, and the actor who plays Mora was saying that sometimes directors will be like, you know, you'll go in and you'll do the perfect take. You'll do the take that they want as an actor. And then they'll be like, hey, let's do a take where you get to do whatever you want. And he said, we start there with transparent. Like we start with there and we go from there. And it was, so it was sort of interesting. But it's occurring to me that listening to you talk about that sort of process and dialogue you're in with the actors as a director that like part of what makes me crazy as a writer is that I am doing all of those things. You know that I'm that I'm that I'm the these unruly actors embodying these characters and then I'm a director with like a different vision and I don't always know which to trust or which to splice together, you know. I think that will go to certain things, right? Like so we had uh, the scene where the death happens, right? and spectacular performances that left the crew weeping in the sidelines. And yet it was a comedy. So <laughs> The was, opening scene of a comedy. <laughs> and so it was really important to kind of get the tone right in that moment. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and that was one of my shortcomings of not having sort of pressed tonally earlier what should have happened. So mm-hmm. we... Um, Lex Vaughn very generously reshot a scene because... Um, you know, we both understood that that it was a uh, tonally, like the reading that she'd originally given was tonally kind of more, like, again, stellar. Again, casting crew completely bowled over by the energy and the, you know, prowess she brought to that part. But again, she, uh, the character is sort of someone you want to be able to laugh at. And if, if you're crying with someone, you're never going to laugh at them until you come to that sort of healing moment. So, um, or you're really disturbed, or you're a sociopath, right? <laughs> so, I think that um, the way that you sort of decide things in a film is you do have to have sort of a central idea of what you're going for, and your actors can bring spectacular stuff, but you're responsible for bringing in the whole. So, um, you want to be able to give them the space to do interesting creative reads. Mm -hmm. Um, And you, it still has to be bounded somewhat. It's your job because that their performance is put together by an editor. And so if you don't do a good job making a nice, consistent process, it's your fault, not theirs. (laughs) Right. And, and all of that is on the one single 
novelist, right? And it's a little, it's a little challenging. But I think that, I don't know, when I think about writing and I think about the, the novelist piece, there's the other side of it, which is also, I think, when you control everything, um, I don't know that people always have a vision. So when we get our feedback from people, mm-hmm. sometimes we might have an intuitive sense about, oh, yeah, this feels in alignment, or, oh, no, this doesn't feel in alignment. Mm-hmm. But I would say, like, do you actually know what you want to go for? I mean, and I so think that's, that's the yeah, that's, underlying. Right. No, I mean, that's, and what's been interesting that's starting to bubble up in this interim period is in my morning writing, because I'm not doing sort of from where you dream writing, which is also uncomfortable, and I, you know... And something I'm struggling with. But in my writing, I'm starting to stand back from the book and say, here's what, here's what I want from it. Here's what I see in it. And one of the ways I'm doing that, so Lauren Groff talks about um, how she writes a draft of a book and then, and then she throws it away. She doesn't look mm-hmm. at it. And then she uses that draft to have figured out what, she's, what the story is. And then she writes the next draft. And she's such a sentence-by-sentence exquisite writer that I just, that was sort of shocking to me. But but you you have to sort of get to that point with the project where, like, um, Matt Bird talks about, like, don't fall in love, or fall out of love with it, not don't fall in love with it, but fall out of love with it at some point in your revision process in order to actually, you know, cut what you need to cut. And, and I would also say that there's kind of this very passive myth about creativity which is sort of you know again like uh people are like oh it's formulaic to sort of know if you know ahead of time that's gonna ruin the whole thing um and i think that people do processes to get to a place where they know better but you cannot fundamentally edit if you don't know what you're editing toward so mm-hmm. you can end up doing a number of revisions and you know we all do, we do thousands of revisions but if you don't have like some kind of internal framework and sometimes it's the no the no we know what we don't want right well and also the like so taking it back to the film like you might have a vision but now you're going to fit the vision back and forth you're going to fit the vision to the footage and the footage to the vision you're going to have to do some of both right there're going to be places where you don't have the pure vision in the footage, and so you have to morph. Right, but I would also, yeah, I mean, also, absolutely, what do I have? What do I have to work with? Where is the, uh, you know, there's a thing with marble. There's, like, certain kinds of veins in the marble that will kind of weaken it or whatever. So mm-hmm. you have to work what's, with what's there. Mm-hmm. But um, if you don't have something you're working toward, how do you know which take is the right one? How do you know if that reaction shot is long enough? Am I trying to get people to laugh or am I trying to get people to cry? Am right. I trying to say something about life? Am I trying to say something just about this dumb person right here? So, Yeah, I think what's challenging for me as a novelist is that I can quote-unquote reshoot anything. And yet, of course, it takes time, right? So you could, it's like if you had an unlimited amount of money and time, you could say, okay, I'm going to reshoot this whole film. Now that I have this, now that I've gone through, that's the Lauren Groff thing. Like throw away those 12 days, start again with what you know now. And there's a way in which that would be incredible, right? I mean, I feel like technically there's things you would know to do, ways you would, even like your one day of rehearsal with the actors, you would be so much more focused they would be like I don't actually know that I would have changed that I would have maybe more time of mm-hmm. rehearsal but I 
you know, that was in part getting people sort of together and in part getting them to kind of walk through and think about um, different pieces. So, you know, there's definitely things I would do differently, no doubt, but um, I actually felt like even though it was probably perceived as a very loose and un uh, or disorganized approach to rehearsal, I think it was one where I wanted to see how they would work together to solve problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Well, good. That's great. Um, well, speaking of solving problems, this, this nice segue. <laughs> um, so, and this actually also grows right out of this idea of knowing what you're after. Right, like knowing at some point, whether it's at the beginning of the writing or filming or whatever, or somewhere in in the process of revision, this idea of story problem. And so, one of the things Matt Bird says in the Secrets of Story is that kind of the 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 formulas that we the kind of cultural formulas about story, which you know are not just imposed from without, but are deeply felt rhythms from within or whatever. But those are. Um, really primarily for stories that are about solving a big problem. And that if it's a different kind of, if it's not about that, then these formulas may not apply and we could, that's another conversation. But that, so I, but I'm intrigued by um, this because I have somebody, a a student of mine who's in conversation with me about her story problem. And I can Mm -hmm. see that, very much like mine often are when I'm at the early stages. They're very, they're big and broad and vague. They're more like the character wants, you know, creative expression or wants, you know, whatever, happiness or, you know, something kind of that sort of, well, one of the questions you often ask is like, how will you know mm-hmm. if they've gotten it or not, right? If, if it's not concrete. And yet... I often start at those outer layers, and I'm really interested in this interim moment as I think about what's next in thinking about how you land on like a story problem that's not a that's not vague, that's not kind of the things we kind of maybe grapple with our in our own brains about our lives in a vague and general way. Well, you know, I think um, it's interesting because. Uh, I've just been listening and reading a lot of books recently about like investing and about money and about, and often what people will say, well, for example, is it's not about the money. It's about the freedom. Mm-hmm. Like really what people want is this other thing. And it's a great example of, um, want versus need, mm-hmm. right? People the, the think people think they want and the underlying thing they really need, which yeah. may not even actually be. Freedom, but <laughs> that's another Well, story. when we talk about freedom, we talk about the ability to... Um, do the things that you value in your life in a manner you feel good about. So it isn't necessarily like freedom to just, you know, bash out windows. Um, Can I just say, it reminds me of this thing that I frequently, or whatever that I've mentioned before, Barbara Scher, who did Wishcraft and one of the other books she did anyway, we'll link to her. Um, she talks and I did actually was at a live workshop with her like 30 years ago or oh, something really? when I was a teenager. Yeah, yeah. Joyce Scott, who was in a previous episode guest, uh, took me to this workshop. And what Barbara Scheer said is 
don't wish for money unless what you want to do is like roll around in it, touch it, like button your origami with it or whatever. Like if you want the physical bills, then wish for money. But if you want something that you would do with the money, whether it's, you know, buy a, a home on the beach or have freedom right. or not work or whatever it is, she's like, wish for that thing because there might be other ways than the money to get that thing. Absolutely. But beyond that, just to use that as an example for story goal, um, that, you know, if you were writing a story where someone was like, you know, I, and there's tons of stories, right? Comedies, bank heists, like the money often, you know, and some vast amount of money uh, at the point of the film or the story being written or made that is like, you know, oh, I will give me one billion dollars or I will destroy the world, right? And that was one of the jokes in um, Austin Powers, right? Because uh, when... Dr. Evil was unfrozen, he had asked for one million dollars, and everyone was like, okay. Um, and they're like, no, 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 the bad guys were like, no, 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 ask for more. You know, and so, um, in any case, there was always a concrete dollar value. Uh, so if you had something where people were like, ah, oh, you get $50,000 if you do that, every character who was going after this $50,000 had a thing that $50,000 would get them. But enabled them to all be after the same goal, which yes. is one of the things Truby talks about. John Truby talks about, um, you know, your your the opponent is somebody who's going who's wants the same thing, not something else, because right. two people can get two different things. Mm -hmm. But so you have to have like this sort of irreconcilable right. fight. So when, you might have one person who needs to get the fifty thousand dollars at the end of this quest. So that they can go to art school, right? Mm -hmm. So we know whether or not they went to art school, but we don't know whether they became an artist or whether they're satisfied or if they found the right medium. Whether or they should have gone to art school. In the first whether, we, we, right. might, we might know, oh, it would have been better if they hadn't gotten the 50 But if the whole thing is like, I want to go to art school, like, that's great. So let's say that was the only story problem. You would still know whether or not they got into art school and they whether they did what, you know, X, Y, or Z thing right. along the way. Um so I think the thing about the concrete goal is to kind of think about, again, what your character, you know, the character's limiting belief, right? So if you have a character whose um, limiting belief is like, I have to have more money than, than X person, and very often they're like revenge things where I'm going to get back and I make the most money and whatever, um, then you can make a concrete goal that is directly out of that limiting belief. Mm -hmm. So um, it's it's that erroneous thinking made manifest. Well, and the, the relationship of the character to the concrete goal is also all about the stakes. So I, I'm reading Transatlantic by uh, somebody. Colin McCann. Yes. <laughs> I'm like, I always get Colin Toybin and Colin McCann mixed up. Anyway, and... Um, so the so the so these two guys are gonna fly across the Atlantic and that's their goal and nobody's ever done it before and there's a ten pound thousand pound prize, but also they're both pilots who were shot down in the war. They're you know they're sort of like PTSD po post war prisoners and all of that. So so this is it has this whole huge resonant other meaning. And funnily enough, he finally actually just says it. Um, he has one of the, like you kind of get it in all these different ways from the character and from the backstory. Mm -hmm. And then eventually this, um, this journalist just kind of, when she writes, she writes like about how um, 
this here. This is a human victory over war, the triumph of endurance over memory. And it was like, oh my God, that's just the, like, the exact statement about what this is about. So anyway, but if, if it were just two random people trying to fly across the ocean, it would be hard to do. It would be a challenge, but it wouldn't be super high stakes for them in their characters in this particular moment. Do you know what I mean? So I think that, and then that's where you get into all the psychology and the themes and all the things that you, that you want to go big on. So let me ask you a question, because you want to talk about this because of your own work. Right. So the question I have for you is, when you think about that, does that help you or does it not help you? When I think about, like, what's next? No, or when, when I think we talk about, about the story goal. Mm-hmm. Well, like, for my, current, for my current project, what is her story goal? No, I think that whatever. Like, mm-hmm. you just said you were having a question in specific. So right. we just said, okay, here's this kind of set of things. Mm-hmm. Do you think those were concrete enough for you to actually feel like you know how or why you want to take action or what you might do? For what? Whatever you had, the, why you had the question. Um, so I have the question, well, one, because I'm in this conversation with my student, and then two, because I tend to start large and thematic and vague. But I'm really, but I see that what is exciting in the is to express those things through something specific. So I do feel like what I want is to kind of brainstorm concrete story problems that are, that are a story and not just a character and a life and the grappling and then build from there. So mm-hmm. yeah, that would be, that would be helpful. And, um, and speaking of that, it is time for steal this. Uh-huh. Amateur poets borrow. Professional poets steal. Said T.S. Eliot and others. Yes. Um, is there something that you've come across in your now several weeks of wanderings and readings that you want to take and make your own? Um, I'm a little ill-prepared for right, I'm going to start because, because actually this is the question you're asking me, which is, yes, I, I love this in Transatlantic. And I've just read the beginning and now we're leaping to like a completely different story. But um, I love how resonant the specificity of the, you know, the airplane and the problems with the airplane and the risks that they're taking. Like they might go deaf because it's so loud and the part of the tailpipe, like, breaks off during the flight and you know what I mean so it's like all this language of airplanes which are not you know my particular passion um all this you know and this these memories of war and just all the beautiful specificity of it um even the you know ham sandwiches that the reporter's daughter photographer daughter like packs for them I mean all of that becomes um really full of the stakes of you know, can we do something grand for creation and achievement rather than just for destruction as we come out of, of a moment of war, right? So, so I guess I do want to challenge myself to dig down into concrete story goal and to really trust the, the resonance of the details of the world. Yeah, and I think that with every other part of writing, just to say there's so many moving pieces all the time. Like, there's going to be a way that you get into it for one project that might just be different for each project, you know. Right. Well, that's that efficiency thing. You just, you can't, you can't be more efficient except by doing more fiercely and more quickly the, you know, your own flawed path. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
so I don't know, and I'm thinking a lot about, I'm going back again to thinking about mindset, not just Carol Dweck's book, but mm-hmm. um, just that piece of how does my thinking actually impact the way I move forward mm-hmm. with my art? So I'm listening right now to um, Jen, somebody, she did You Are a Badass. Oh, okay. And, um, we'll link to her in the notes. And then she's got one out about money. So as I was walking down here, I was listening to it. And, you know, one of the things she sort of talked about was, like, there are ideas we hold on to about money that to us almost feel more important than anything else. So um, the idea. Well, what does it mean to be a good person relative to money? We all have sort of these values about it. And I would argue that anybody who is having any kind of problem being productive around their writing has an underlying belief about what it means to get done, what it means to be out in public, what it means to, you know, so that really it isn't you don't know what to say or you don't even know the functions or you don't have, a, you know what I mean, like, if you, you know, we, we dig into these things about what is a story problem, we dig into these things about like how do I write better how do I do these things better and all of those things will come over time if you keep writing but that we have these underlying beliefs that are like if we don't have a certain return on investment or if we are standing out and it's not been okay in our uh you know family of origin or in our whatever if it's not you know so I think it's really interesting to see the level of um like risk we're willing to take Mm. And the level of just shut down fear we're willing to sit with in order not to address that fear of uh, doing. Mm. Yeah. And that reminds me that whenever I step back from my book, I lose, I lose it completely. I lose the actual book and I go into the big fear stuff. And, it, and, uh, and, and um, yeah. Annie Dillard has this great image of the of the inchworm, like letting go of, of its front feet and f- and just flailing, like there's no world, there's no world, and then finding the blade of grass again and clinging on and like inching up and then letting go again. There's no world, there's no world, and like this is you know the writer, right? This is the creative person. But you know, you look at you look at artists from you know, a, you know before the Renaissance, and you just did not know who did what kind of painting in the same way mm-hmm. that we had those beautiful illuminated manuscripts. People might have become known in, in, in a certain way, but it isn't wasn't the sense of ownership that we mm-hmm. have now. So I think there's this way in which the identity gets so wrapped up in the writing or in the practice mm-hmm. that it makes it harder to do. So almost like if you were able to step away and say this this happens whether and it doesn't mean I'm a good person it doesn't mean I'm a bad person it doesn't mean I'm successful it doesn't mean I'm not successful it doesn't mean anything in those ways except for the satisfaction it brings me to do the work if we were able to actually sit in that place with it there'd be a lot more far more productive writers and I think probably a lot better work yeah all right well um you can uh, find us at storymakersshow.com. If this is this very day that we're going to release this, which is Thursday, May 18th, 2017, I, Elizabeth, will be at the Petaluma Copperfields at 630 uh, talking about battling demons and chasing whims about creating a writing practice. So um, come join us there and um, let us know your thoughts, like us, 
whatever, rate us on iTunes, and we'll see you next week. Bye.